Section 11 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Emanuela. The History of Rome, Volume 1 by Livy. Translated by William Masven Roberts. Book 2. From Chapter 22 to Chapter 33. Chapter 22. War with the Volscians, Treaty with the Latins. The relations with the Volscians during the Latin War were neither friendly nor openly hostile. The Volscians had collected a force which they were intending to send to the aid of the Latins had not the dictator forestalled them by the rapidity of his movements, a rapidity due to his anxiety to avoid a battle with the combined armies. To punish them, the consuls led the legions into the Volscians' country. This unexpected movement paralyzed the Volscians who were not expecting retribution for what had been only an intention. Unable to offer resistance, they gave as hostages 300 children belonging to their nobility, drawn from Cora and Pomezia. The legions, accordingly, were marched back without fighting. Relieved from the immediate danger, the Volscians soon fell back on their old policy and, after forming an armed alliance with the Hernicans, made secret preparations for war. They also dispatched envoys through the length and breadth of Latium to induce that nation to join them. But after their defeat at Lake Regillus, the Latins were so incensed against everyone who advocated the resumption of hostilities that they did not even spare the Volscians envoys who were arrested and conducted to Rome. There, they were handed over to the consuls and evidence was produced showing that the Volscians and Hernicans were preparing for war with Rome. When the matter was brought before the Senate, they were so gratified by the action of the Latins that they sent back 6,000 prisoners who had been sold into slavery and also referred to the new magistrates the question of a treaty which they had hitherto persistently refused to consider. The Latins congratulated themselves upon the course they had adopted, and the advocates of peace were in high honor. They sent a golden crown as a gift to the capital in Jupiter. The deputation who brought the gift were accompanied by a large number of the released prisoners who visited the houses where they had worked as slaves to thank their former masters for the kindness and consideration shown them in their misfortunes, and to form ties of hospitality with them. At no previous period had the Latin nation been on more friendly terms, both politically and personally, with the Roman government. Chapter 23 The Volscian War and the first secession of the plebs. But a war with the Volscians was imminent, and the state was torn with internal dissensions. The patricians and the plebeians were bitterly hostile to one another, 
owing mainly to the desperate condition of the debtors. They loudly complained that whilst fighting in the field for liberty and empire, they were oppressed and enslaved by their fellow citizens at home. Their freedom was more secure in war than in peace, safer amongst the enemy than amongst their own people. The discontent, which was becoming of itself continually more embittered, was still further inflamed by the signal misfortunes of one individual. An old man, bearing visible proofs of all the evils he had suffered, suddenly appeared in the forum. His clothing was covered with filth. His personal appearance was made still more loathsome by a corpse-like pallor and emaciations. His unkempt beard and hair made him look like a savage. In spite of this disfigurement, he was recognized by the pitying bystanders. They said that he had been a centurion and mentioned other military distinctions he possessed. He bared his breast and showed the scars which witnesses to many fights in which he had borne an honorable part. The crowd had now almost grown to the dimensions of an assembly of the people. He was asked, Whence came that garb? Whence that disfigurement? He stated that, whilst serving in the Sabine War, he had not only lost the produce of his land through the depredations of the enemy, but his farm had been burnt, all his property plundered, his cattle driven away, the war tax demanded when he was least able to pay it, and he had got into debt. This debt had been vastly increased through usury and had stripped him first of his father's and grandfather's farm, then of his other property, and at last, like a pestilence, had reached his person. He had been carried off by his creditor, not into slavery only, but into an underground workshop, a living death. Then he showed his back scored with the recent marks of the lash. On seeing and hearing all this, a great outcry arose. The excitement was not confined to the forum. It spread everywhere throughout the city. Men who were in bondage for debt and those who had been released rushed from all sides into the public streets and invoked the protection of the Quirites. Note the formula in which a man appealed to his fellow citizens for help. End of note. Everyone was eager to join the malcontents. Numerous bodies ran shouting through all the streets to the forum. Those of the senators who happened to be in the forum and fell in with the mob were in great danger of their lives. Open violence would have been resorted to had not the consuls Publius Servilius and Appius Claudius promptly intervened to quell the outbreak. The crowd surged around them, showed their chains and other marks of degradation. These, they said, were the rewards for having served their country. 
they tauntingly reminded the consuls of the various campaigns in which they had fought, and peremptorily demanded, rather than petitioned, that the Senate should be called together. Then they closed around the Senate House, determined to be themselves the arbiters and directors of public policy. A very small number of senators who happened to be available were got together by the consuls. The rest were afraid to go even to the forum, much more to the Senate House. No business could be transacted owing to the requisite number not being present. The people began to think that they were being played with and put off, that the absent senators were not kept away by accident or by fear, but in order to prevent any redress of their grievances, and that the consuls themselves were shuffling and laughing at their misery. Matters were reaching the point at which not even the majesty of the consuls could keep the enraged people in check, when the absentees, a sentence whether they run the greater risk by staying away or coming, at last entered the Senate House. The House was now full, and the division of opinion showed itself not only amongst the senators, but even between the two consuls. Appius, a man of passionate temperament, was of opinion that the matter ought to be settled by a display of authority on the part of the consuls. If one or two were brought up for trial, the rest would come down. Servilius, more inclined to gentle measures, thought that when men's passions are aroused, it was safer and easier to bend them than to break them. Chapter 24 In the middle of these disturbances, fresh alarm was created by some Latin horsemen who galloped in with the discreeting tidings that a Volscian army was on the march to attack the city. This intelligence affected the patricians and the plebeians very differently. To such an extent had civic discord rent the state in twain. The plebeians were exultant. They said that the gods were preparing to avenge the tyranny of the patricians. They encouraged each other to evade enrollment, for it was better for all to die together than to perish one by one. Let the patricians take up arms. Let the patricians serve as common soldiers, that those who get the spoils of war may share its perils. The Senate, on the other hand, filled with gloomy apprehension by the twofold danger from their own fellow citizens and from their enemy, implored the consul Servilius, who was more sympathetic towards the people, to extricate the state from the perils that beset it on all sides. He dismissed the Senate and went into the assembly of plebs. There he pointed out how anxious the Senate were to consult the interests of the plebs, but their deliberations, respecting what was certainly the largest part, though still only a part, of the state, had been cut short by fears for the safety of the state as a whole. The enemy were almost at their gates. Nothing could be allowed to take precedence of the war, but even if the attack were postponed, it would not be honorable on the part of the plebeians to refuse to take up arms for their country till they had been paid for doing so, 
nor would it be compatible with the self-respect of the senate to be actuated by fear rather than by goodwill in devising measures for the relief of their distressed fellow citizens he convinced the assembly of his sincerity by issuing an edict that none should keep a roman citizen in chains or duress whereby he would be prevented from enrolling for military service none should distrain or sell the goods of a soldier as long as he was in camp or detain his children or grandchildren on the promulgation of this edict those debtors who were present at once gave in their names for enrollment and crowds of persons running in all quarters of the city from the houses where they were confined as their creditors had no longer the right to detain them gathered together in the forum to take the military oath these formed a considerable force and none were more conspicuous for courage and activity in the volscian war the consul led his troops against the enemy and enchanted a short distance from them chapter twenty five the very next night the volscians trusting to the dissensions amongst the romans made an attempt on the camp on the chance of desertions taking place or the camp being betrayed in the darkness the outposts perceived them the army was aroused and on the alarm being sounded they rushed to arms so the volscian attempt was foiled for the rest of the night both sides kept quiet the following day at dawn the volscians filled up the trenches and attacked the ramparts this was already being torn down on all sides while the consul in spite of the shouts of the whole army of the debtors most of all demanding the signal for action delayed for a few minutes in order to test the temper of his men when he was quite satisfied as to their ardour and determination he gave the signal to charge and launched his soldiery eager to engage upon the foe they were rooted at the very first onset the fugitives were cut down as far as the infantry could pursue them then the cavalry drove them in confusion to their camp they evacuated it in their panic the legions soon came up surrounded it captured and plundered it the following day the legions marched to suessa pomezia whither the enemy had fled and in a few days it was captured and given up to the soldiers to pillage this to some extent relieved the poverty of the soldiers the consul covered with glory led his victorious army back to rome whilst on the march he was visited by envoys from the volscians of ecetra who were concerned for their own safety after the capture of pomezia by a decree of the senate peace was granted to them some territory was taken from them chapter twenty six immediately afterwards a fresh alarm was created at rome by the sabines but it was more a sudden raid than a regular war news was brought during the night that a sabine army had advanced as far as the Anio on a predatory expedition 
and that the farms in that neighborhood were being harried and burned. Aulus Postumius, who had been the dictator in the Latin War, was at once sent there with the whole of the cavalry force. The consul Servilius followed with a picket body of infantry. Most of the enemy were surrounded by the cavalry while scattered in the fields. The Sabine legion offered no resistance to the advance of the infantry. Tired out with their march and the nocturnal plundering, a large proportion of them were in the farms full of food and wine, they had hardly sufficient strength to flee. The Sabine war was announced and concluded in one night, and strong hopes were entertained that peace had now been secured everywhere. The next day, however, envoys from the Auruncans came with a demand for the evacuation of the Volscian territory, otherwise they were to proclaim war. The army of the Auruncans had begun their advance when the envoys left home, and the report of its having been seen not far from Aricia created so much excitement and confusion amongst the Romans that it was impossible either for the Senate to take the matter into formal consideration or for a favorable reply to be given to those who were commencing hostilities, since they were themselves taking up arms to repel them. They marched to Aricia. Not far from there, they engaged the Auruncans and in one battle finished the war. Chapter 27 After the defeat of the Auruncans, the Romans, who had, within a few days, fought so many successful wars, were expecting the fulfillment of the promises which the consul had made on the authority of the Senate. Appius, partly from his innate love of tyranny and partly to undermine the confidence felt in his colleague, gave the harshest sentences he could when debtors were brought before him. One after another, those who had before pledged their persons as security were now handed over to their creditors, and others were compelled to give such security. A soldier to whom this happened appealed to the colleague of Appius. A crowd gathered round Servilius. They reminded him of his promises, upbraided him with their services in war and the scars they had received, and demanded that he should either get an ordinance passed by the Senate or, as consul, protect his people, as commander, his soldiers. The consul sympathized with them, but under the circumstances he was compelled to temporize. The opposite policy was so recklessly insisted on, not only by his colleague, but by the entire party of the nobility. By taking a middle course, he did not escape the odium of the plebs, nor did he win the favor of the patricians. These regarded him as a weak popularity-hunting consul. The plebeians considered him false, and it soon became apparent that he was as much detested as Appius. A dispute had arisen between the consuls as to which of them should dedicate the Temple of Mercury. The Senate referred the question to the people and issued orders 
that the one to whom the dedication was assigned by the people should preside over the corn market and form a guild of merchants, and discharge functions in the presence of the Pontifex Maximus. Note The connection of these various functions appear to be that Mercury, as the god of commerce, hence merchant market, would be the patron of the newly established guild of corn merchants, who would be especially connected with his new temple. End of note. The people assigned the dedication of the temple to Marcus Letorius, the first centurion of the legion, a choice obviously made not so much to honor the man by conferring upon him an office so far above his station as to bring discredit on the consuls. One of them, at all events, was excessively angry, as were the senate, but the courage of the plebs had arisen, and they went to work in a very different method from that which they had adopted at first. For as any prospect of help from the consuls or the senate was hopeless, they took matters into their own hands, and whenever they saw a debtor brought before the court, they rushed there from all sides, and by their shouts and uproar prevented the consul's sentence from being heard, and when it was pronounced, no one obeyed it. They resorted to violence, and all the fear and danger to personal liberty was transferred from the debtors to the creditors, who were roughly handled before the eyes of the consul. In addition to all these, there were growing apprehension of a Sabine war. A levy was decreed, but no one gave in his name. Appius was furious. He accused his colleague of courting the favor of the people, denounced him as a traitor to the commonwealth because he refused to give sentence where debtors were brought before him, and moreover he refused to raise troops after the senate had ordered a levy. Still, he declared, the ship of state was not entirely deserted nor the consular authority thrown to the winds. He single-handed, would vindicate his own dignity and that of the Senate. Whilst the usual daily crowd were standing round him, growing ever bolder in license, he ordered one conspicuous leader of the agitation to be arrested. As he was being dragged away by the electors, he appealed. There was no doubt as to what judgment the people would give, and he would not have allowed the appeal had not his obstinacy been, with great difficulty overcome more by the prudence and authority of the Senate than by the clamor of the people, so determined was he to brave the popular odium. From that time the mischief became more serious every day, not only through open clamor, but, what was far more dangerous, through secession and secret meetings. At length the consuls, detested as they were by the plebs, went out of office, Servilius equally hated by both orders, Appius in wonderful favour with the patricians. Chapter 28 Then Aulus Virginius and Titus Vetusius took office. 
as the plebeians were doubtful as to what sort of consuls they would have and were anxious to avoid any precipitate and ill-considered action which might result from hastily adopted resolutions in the forum they began to hold meetings at night some on the esquiline and others on the aventine the consuls considered this state of things to be fraught with danger as it really was and made a formal report to the senate but any orderly discussion of the report was out of the question owing to the excitement and clamour with which the senators received it and the indignation they felt at the consuls throwing upon them the odium of measures which they ought to have carried on their own authority as consuls surely it was said if there were really magistrates in the state there would have been no meetings in rome beyond the public assembly now the state was broken up into a thousand senates and assemblies since some councils were being held on the esquiline and others on the aventine why one man like appius claudius who was worth more than a consul would have dispersed these gatherings in a moment when the consuls after being thus censured asked what they wished them to do as they were prepared to act with all the energy and determination that the senate desired a decree was passed that the levy should be raised as speedily as possible for the plebs was waxing wanton through idleness after dismissing the senate the consuls ascended the tribunal and called out the names of those liable to active service not a single man answered to his name the people standing round as thought in formal assembly declared that the plebs could no longer be imposed upon the consuls should not get a single soldier until the promise made in the name of the state was fulfilled before arms were put into their hands every man's liberty must be restored to him that they might fight for their country and their fellow citizens and not for tyrannical masters the consuls were quite aware of the instructions they had received from the senate but they were also aware that none of those who had spoken so bravely within the walls of the senate house were now present to share the odium which they were incurring a desperate conflict with the plebs seemed inevitable before proceeding to extremities they decided to consult the senate again thereupon all the younger senators rushed from their seats and crowding around the chairs of the consuls ordered them to resign their office and lay down an authority which they had not the courage to maintain chapter twenty nine having had quite enough of trying to coerce the plebs on the one hand and persuading the senate to adopt a milder course on the other the consuls at last said senators that you may not say you have not been forewarned we tell you that a very serious disturbance is at hand 
We demand that those who are the loudest in charging us with cowardice shall support us whilst we conduct the levy. We will act as the most resolute may wish, since such is your pleasure. They returned to the tribunal and purposely ordered one of those who were in view to be called up by name. As he stood silent and a number of men had closed around him to prevent his being seized, the consuls sent a lictor to him. The lictor was pushed away, and those senators who were with the consuls exclaimed that it was an outrageous insult and rushed down from the tribunal to assist the lictor. The hostility of the crowd was diverted from the lictor, who had simply been prevented from making the arrest, to the senators. The interposition of the consuls finally allayed the conflict. There had, however, been no stones thrown or weapon used, it has resulted in more noise and angry words than personal injury. The Senate was summoned and assembled in disorder. Its proceedings were still more disorderly. Those who had been routely handled demanded an inquiry, and all the more violent members supported the demand by shouting and uproar quite as much as by their votes. When at last the excitement had succeeded, the consuls censored them for showing as little calm judgment in the Senate as there was in the Forum. Then the debate proceeded in order. Three different policies were advocated. Publius Valerius did not think the general question ought to be raised. He thought they ought only to consider the case of those who, in reliance on the promise of the consul Publius Servilius, had served in the Volscian, Auruncan and Seven Wars. Titus Larchus considered that the time had passed for rewarding only men who had served the whole plebs was overwhelmed with debt. The evil could not be arrested unless there was a measure for universal relief. Any attempt to differentiate between the various classes would only kindle fresh discord instead of allaying it. Appius Claudius, harsh by nature, and now maddened by the hatred of the plebs on the one hand and the praises of the Senate, on the other, asserted that these riotous gatherings were not the result of misery, but of license. The plebeians were actuated by wantonness more than by anger. This was the mischief which has sprung from the right of appeal, for the consuls could only threaten without the power to execute their threats, as long as a criminal was allowed to appeal to his fellow criminals. Come! said he, let us create a dictator from whom there is no appeal. Then this madness which is setting everything on fire will soon die down. Let me see anyone strike a lictor then, when he knows that his back and even his life are in the sole power of the man whose authority he attacks. Chapter 30 to many the sentiments which Appius uttered seemed cruel and monstrous, as they really were. On the other hand, the proposals of Virginius and Larchus 
would set a dangerous precedent, that of Larchus at all events, as it would destroy all credit. The advice given by Virginius was regarded as the most moderate, being a middle course between the other two. But, through the strength of his party and the consideration of personal interests which always have injured and always will injure public policy, Appius won the day. He was very nearly being himself appointed dictator, an appointment which would more than anything have alienated the plebs, and that too at a most critical time when the Volscians, the Equi and the Sabines were all in arms together. The consuls and the older patricians, however, took care that a magistracy clothed with such tremendous powers should be entrusted to a man of moderate temper. They created Marcus Valerius, the son of Volesus, dictator. Though the plebeians recognized that it was against them that a dictator had been created, still, as they held their right of appeal under a law which his brother had passed, they did not fear any harsh or tyrannical treatment from that family. Their hopes were confirmed by an edict issued by the dictator, very similar to the one made by Servilius. That edict had been ineffective, but they thought that more confidence could be placed in the person and power of the dictator, so, dropping all opposition, they gave in their names for enrollment. Ten legions were formed, a larger army than had ever before been assembled. Three of them were assigned to each of the consuls. The dictator took command of four. The war could no longer be delayed. The Equi had invaded the Latin territory. Envoys sent by the Latins asked the Senate either to send help or allow them to arm for the purpose of defending their frontier. It was though safer to defend the unarmed Latins than to allow them to rearm themselves. The consul Vetusius was dispatched, and that was the end of the raids. The Equi withdrew from the plains, and trusting more to the nature of the country than to their arms, sought safety on the mountain ridges. The other consul advanced against the Volscians, and to avoid loss of time, he devastated their fields with the object of forcing them to move their camp nearer to his, and so bringing on an engagement. The two armies stood facing each other, in front of their respective lines, on the level space between the camps. The Volscians had considerably the advantage in numbers, and accordingly showed their contempt for their foe by coming on in disorder. The Roman consul kept his army motionless, forbade their raising an answering shout, and ordered them to stand with their spears fixed in the ground, and when the enemy came to close quarters, to spring forward and make all possible use of their swords. The Volscians, wearied with their running and shouting, threw themselves upon the Romans as upon men benumbed with fear, but when they felt the strength of the counterattack and saw the swords flashing before them, 
they retreated in confusion just as if they had been caught in an ambush, and owing to the speed at which they had come into action, they had not even strength to flee. The Romans, on the other hand, who at the beginning of the battle had remained quietly standing, were fresh and vigorous and easily overtook the exhausted portions, rushed their camp, drove them out and pursued them as far as Velitre, victors and vanquished, bursting pell-mell into the city. A greater slaughter of all ranks took place there than in the actual battle. A few who threw down their arms and surrendered received quarter. Chapter 31 Whilst these events were occurring amongst the Volscians, the dictator, after entering the Sabine territory, where the most serious part of the war lay, defeated and routed the enemy and chased them out of their camp. A cavalry charge had broken the enemy's center, which, owing to the excessive lengthening of the wings, was weakened by an insufficient depth of files. And, while thus disordered, the infantry charged them. In the same charge, the camp was captured and the war brought to a close. Since the battle at Lake Regillus, no more brilliant action had been fought in those years. The dictator rode in triumph into the city. In addition to the customary distinctions, a place was assigned in the Circus Maximus to him and to his posterity, from which to view the games and the Sella Curulis was placed there. Note Sella Curulis, literally, the chariot seat, and hence the seat of the Supreme Magistrate when administering justice. End of note. After the subjugation of the Volscians, the territory of Velitre was annexed and the body of Roman citizens was sent out to colonize it. Sometime later, an engagement took place with the Equi. The consul was reluctant to fight as he would have to attack on unfavorable ground, but his soldiers forced him into action. They accused him of protracting the war in order that the dictator's term of office might expire before they returned home, in which case his promises would fall to the ground, as those of the consul had previously done. They compelled him to march his army up the mountain at all hazards, but owing to the cowardice of the enemy, this unwise step resulted in success. They were so outstanded at the daring of the Romans that before they came within range of their weapons, they abandoned their camp, which was in a very strong position, and dashed it down into the valley in the rear. So the victors gained a bloodless victory and ample spoil. Whilst these three wars were thus brought to a successful issue, the course which domestic affairs were taking, continued to be a source of anxiety to both the patricians and the plebeians. The money lenders possessed such influence 
and had taken such skillful precautions that they rendered the commons and even the dictator himself powerless. After the consul Vetusius had returned, Valerius introduced, as the very first business of the Senate, the treatment of the men who had been marching to victory, and moved a resolution as to what decision they ought to come to with regard to the debtors. His motion was negatived, on which he said, I am not acceptable as an advocate of concord. Depend upon it, you will very soon wish that the Roman plebs had champions like me. As far as I am concerned, I will no longer encourage my fellow citizens in vain hopes, nor will I be dictator in vain. Internal dissensions and foreign wars have made this office necessary to the Commonwealth. Peace has now been secured abroad, at home it is made impossible. I would rather be involved in the revolution as a private citizen than as dictator. So saying, he left the house and resigned his dictatorship. The reason was quite clear to the plebs. He had resigned office because he was indignant at the way they were treated. The non-fulfillment of his pledge was not due to him. They considered that he had practically kept his word, and on his way home they followed him with approving cheers. Chapter 32 The Senate now began to feel apprehensive lest on the disbandment of the army there should be a recurrence of the secret conclaves and conspiracies. Although the dictator had actually conducted the enrollment, the soldiers had sworn obedience to the consuls. Regarding them as still bound by their oath, the Senate ordered the legions to be marched out of the city on the pretext that the war had been recommenced by the equi. This step brought the revolution to a head. It is said that the first idea was to put the consuls to death, that the men might be discharged from their oath. Then, on learning that no religious obligation could be dissolved by a crime, they decided, at the instigation of a certain Sicinius, to ignore the consuls and withdraw to the sacred mount, which lay on the other side of the Anio, three miles from the city. This is a more generally accepted tradition than the one adopted by Piso that the secession was made to the Aventine. There, without any commander, in a regularly entrenched camp, taking nothing with them but the necessaries of life, they quietly maintained themselves for some days, neither receiving nor giving any provocation. A great panic seized the city. Mutual distrust led to a state of universal suspense. Those plebeians who had been left by their comrades in the city feared violence from the patricians. The patricians feared the plebeians who still remained in the city and could not make up their minds whether they would rather have them go or stay. How long, it was asked, would the multitude who had seceded remain quiet? 
What would happen if a foreign war broke out in the meantime? They felt that all their hopes rested on concord amongst the citizens and that this must be restored at any cost. The Senate decided, therefore, to send, as their spokesman, Menenius Agrippa, an eloquent man, and acceptable to the plebs as being himself of plebeian origin. He was admitted into the camp, and it is reported that he simply told them the following fable in primitive and uncouth fashion. In the days when all the parts of the human body were not as now agreeing together, but each member took its own course and spoke its own speech, the other members, indignant at seeing that everything acquired by their care and labor and ministry went to the belly, whilst it, undisturbed in the middle of them all, did nothing but enjoy the pleasures provided for it, entered into a conspiracy. The hands were not to bring food to the mouth. The mouth was not to accept it when offered. The teeth were not to masticate it. Whilst, in their resentment, they were anxious to coerce the belly by starving it. The members themselves wasted away and the whole body was reduced to the last stage of exhaustion. Then it became evident that the belly rendered no idle service and the nourishment it received was no greater than that which it bestowed by returning to all parts of the body this blood by which we live and are strong, equally distributed into the veins after being matured by the digestion of the food. By using this comparison and showing how the internal disaffection amongst the parts of the body resembled the animosity of the plebeians against the patricians, he succeeded in winning over his audience. Chapter 33 Negotiations were then entered upon for a reconciliation. An agreement was arrived at, the terms being that the plebs should have its own magistrates whose persons were to be inviolable and who should have the right of affording protection against the consuls. And further, no patrician should be allowed to hold that office. Two tribunes of the plebs were elected, Gaius Licinius and Lucius Albinus. These chose three colleagues. It is generally agreed that Sicinius, the instigator of the secession, was amongst them, but who the other two were is not settled. Some say that only two tribunes were created on the sacred hill and that it was there that the Lex Sacrata was passed. Note. Lex Sacrata a law under which offenders were devoted, sacer, to the infernal deities with their wives and children and goods. By this awful course upon anyone who injured the tribunes of the plebs, their inviolability was secured. End of note. 
League with Latins, War with Devotions. During the secession of the plebs, Spurius Cassius and Postumius Cominius entered on their consulship. In their year of office, a treaty was concluded with the Latin towns, and one of the consuls remained in Rome for the purpose. The other was sent to the Volscian War. He routed a force of Volscians from Antium and pursued them to Longula, which he gained possession of. Then he advanced to Polusca, also belonging to the Volscians, which he captured, after which he attacked Corioli in great force. Amongst the most distinguished of the young soldiers in the camp at that time was Gnaeus Marcius, a young man prompting consul and action, who afterwards received the epithet of Coriolanus. During the progress of the siege, while the Roman army was devoting its whole attention to the townspeople whom it had shut up within their walls, and not in the least apprehending any danger from hostile movements without, it was suddenly attacked by Volscian legions who had marched from Antium. At the same moment, a sortie was made from the town. Marcius happened to be on guard, and with a picket body of men not only repelled the sortie, but made a bold dash through the open gate, and after cutting down many in the part of the city nearest to him, seized some fire and hurled it on the buildings which abutted on the walls. The shouts of the townsmen, mingled with the shrieks of the terrified women and children, encouraged the Romans and dismayed the devotions, who thought that the city which they had come to assist was already captured. So the troops from Antium were rooted and Corioli taken. The renown which Marcius won so completely eclipsed that of the consul, that had not the treaty with the Latins, which owing to his colleagues' absence had been concluded by Spurius Cassius alone, been inscribed on a brazen column, and so permanently recorded, all memory of Postumius Cominius having carried on a war with the Volscians would have perished. In the same year Agrippa Menenius died, a man who, all through his life, was equally beloved by the patricians and the plebeians, and made himself still more endeared to the plebeians after their secession. Yet he, the negotiator and arbitrator of the reconciliation, who acted as the ambassador of the patricians to the plebs and brought them back to the city, did not possess money enough to defray the cost of his funeral. He was interred by the plebeians, each man contributing a sextant towards the expense. Note Sextants One-sixth of an ass A copper coin about the size of a farthing. End of note. End of section 11.